Nehemiah chapter 7. Actually, we'll be covering chapter 7, but turn to chapter 8 because that's what we'll be reading to start with. Nehemiah chapter 8. The work of rebuilding the temple and the wall could only happen with the strength that God had supplied. Nehemiah had arrived in Jerusalem on the first month of the year, and within three months the restoration project was resumed on the wall. The people had given themselves wholly to the work for 52 days, and during that time there was severe opposition from their enemies. They had a they had planned a surprise attack. They had threatened to destroy them through battle. They put pressure on them through sending letters. They tried to convince them that the work was worthless, and so the threat of attack and the uh, opposition was great. But Nehemiah and the people remained firm in their commitment to finish what God had called them to do, what God had stirred them up to do. There was also some internal conflict that they had to face as well, in addition to the external conflict, because there were Jewish men who were working on the wall, and because of that, they had to stay inside the city walls all night to help defend the city against these external attack. And those who had families that lived outside of the city had struggling financial situations. Um, they didn't have men who could bring in the harvest. Part of the problem was there was a famine. And as a result, they didn't have money to buy food. Some of them had to mortgage their property in order to get money. Others had to sell their own children into slavery. And they were just um, in a desperate financial situation. And the debtors were some of their own ethnic people. Some of the Jewish nobles, the rich of their land, were taking advantage of these other Jews' distressed position and Nehemiah finds out about it and he confronts them and they gladly repent and willingly relieve their debtors. Well, by the end of chapter 6, the temple and wall have been completed. And now, in chapter 7 and 8, it's time to restore community among the people and to restore worship of God. But in order for those things to happen, Nehemiah first needed to accomplish a few things. So, this morning, I want to read chapter 8. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll look at chapter 7 as well briefly, but chapter 8 is what we want to, to give some attention to now through reading. Let me begin with verse 1. This is the Word of God. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose and beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maaseah on his right hand and Padeah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashum, Hashbadanah, Zechariah and Meshulam on his left hand. 
Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kalida, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peleah, the Levites, explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Then, on the second day of the head, uh, on the second day, the heads of fathers' households of all people, the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying. Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. The entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day, and there was great rejoicing. He read from the book of the law of God daily from the first day to the last day, and they celebrated the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. Here in chapter 7 and 8 we're going to see that the word of God molds the people of God. It, it conforms, it, it transforms the people of God. It's the Word of God that does it. They recognize that now that these outside threats and these inside threats are, are taken care of, they need to be restored fully to community and worship. This sense of community among their people and the sense of worshiping of God rightfully as He demands. In order for that to happen, there needs to be, chapter 7, a preservation of the people, and then chapter 8, spiritual reformation. So that's what we're going to see this morning. First, preservation of the people. If they're going to restore community and worship, the community of the people and worship of God, then they need to preserve the people that they have. And that's what chapter 7 is about. We skipped over that because beginning in verse 7, there are just a long list of names, and I had enough trouble reading the names that we had in chapter 8, so we're not going to read through all those. Preservation of the people. In verses 1-3, through 3, 
they recognize, Nehemiah as a leader recognizes that he must preserve the people that are in the city. Nehemiah here is not interested in short-term restoration of the city. He wasn't interested in just coming in, doing a quick makeover, and then moving on. You know, these shows Extreme Makeover makeover Home Edition, they come in, they they quickly change the house, and they're gone. All they're concerned about is just a quick makeover. They're not concerned about long-term... uh, a long-term health of the house or the the uh, structure of the house. They're they're just concerned about making it pretty really quickly. And that's not what's going on here. Nehemiah comes in. He makes a change. Has the walls rebuilt. And now he wants to restore or maintain what he fully has. He fully anticipated that this Jewish community would be renewed and that it would continue on for future generations. But he also recognized that Jewish community and the worship of God does not happen automatically. And so, the first step that he has to take in continuing what God had stirred up in him six months earlier, in order to preserve that, is he needs to preserve this city. And this is what we see in verses 1-3. through So look at chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the wall was rebuilt and I had set up the doors, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. And I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man, and he feared God more than many. Then I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they're standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post, and each in front of his own house. So he sets up some men who are going to be in charge of protecting the city. Men of character. Men who are not willing to accept a bribe from an outsider, for example. And that they should not open the gates to the city until the sun is hot. In other words, when the sun is at its hottest, when it's bright out. You don't want to open the gates during the night because you might not see what's going on. So they wanted to have a good visual of what was going on. And so uh, we want to make sure that we're protecting this city. Everybody needs to be at their post. Make sure that you're, you're guarding this city from the enemies from without. So there's a preservation of the people and the city. Listen, we can't restore our community and we can't restore worship of God if we are exposed to attack. So let's just guard what we've done. We've done all this work and getting it back to where it needs to be over the course of a few years, actually several years, a couple decades, Ezra had come back with Zerubbabel first, and then Ezra with the rebuilding of the temple, and now the rebuilding of the wall. We've done all this work, and we're going to lose it all if we don't protect the city. But he also recognized that they needed to preserve the nation, not just the the city from attack, but also the nation, verses 4 through 73. It wasn't enough to guard the city. The city was going to be unsafe if it was underpopulated. And that's what verses 4 through 773 are about. Look at the problem here in verse 4. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. So which which city is harder to attack? A desolate city or an occupied city? Right? The difference between uh, Billings, Montana and... New York City, right? Which one is harder to attack? Well, if you've got people there, it's going to be a lot harder to attack. And Nehemiah recognizes that. Listen, we've got an underpopulated city. We have a huge city, but not very many people in it. So he uses this 
this section here in verses 4 to 73 to basically uh, have a census of all the people who are here and help them to recognize that, that part of your responsibility is to grow this city. It is to reproduce and to stay here in the city. Don't, don't move away. And the Jews, I think, also recognize this. So, now, the first step in restoring community of the people and the worship of God is preservation of the people. The second step is spiritual reformation. This is what the rest of the book is going to be about. Chapters 8 to 13, spiritual reformation. We see this here uh, beginning in chapter 8. And the first thing that we see in chapter 8 is that spiritual reformation begins with careful attention to God's Word. Spiritual reformation begins with careful attention to God's Word. In verse 1, we see that they have an attitude of expectation. Notice, all the people gathered as one at the square, which is in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. It's good to desire spiritual reformation, but it never begins with a change of programs or a change of behavior unless that program or, or behavior has to do with submitting ourselves to the Word of God. And the Jews recognize this, that, that if, if there's going to be change, if there's going to be restoration, they recognized where they were spiritually was not meeting up to, to God's standard and where they needed to be the, the change is going to begin with careful attention to God's Word. And it's amazing that the people have this attitude of expectation. Isn't it interesting here in verse 1 that they, the people, are the ones who take the initiative in seeking spiritual change. Right? The people gathered. And then at the end of the verse, they asked Ezra to bring the book of the law. It wasn't Ezra. You know, sometimes that's the way God works. He works as leaders have ideas and then they, they present them to the congregation God works that way often but in this case it's the people who say listen we have a desire for spiritual change so Ezra will you read to us from the word of God sometimes as individuals it's easy to wait around for a leader to come and push us into spiritual change but here's what we can learn this morning if you want spiritual change then initiate it on your end by expressing your desire to learn from God, to hear God speak. An attitude of expectation. In verses 2-4, through four, we see an attitude of responsiveness. An attitude of responsiveness. The key to this section of verses, uh, verses 2-8 through eight really, is the word understanding. Let me just show you in verse 2. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. Verse 3, he read from it before the square, which is in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand. And then verse 7, this is implied, all these men and the Levites, second part of the verse, explained the law to the people while the people remained in the place. The explanation there is where we get the implication of understanding. Then verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, translating, translating it to give the sense so that they understood. So you have this word understanding or understood in those four verses. And, and, and the point here is 
that the people recognize that the Word of God is not about superstition. It's not just, you know, something magically happens, like when Bill comes up here to read, or, or any other of the men, or I read. There's nothing magical that happens. Like, it's like carrying a rabbit's foot in your pocket. Something magical is going to happen if we read the Word of God. There's going to be magically some change. No, they recognize that it's, it's not just about reading the Word of God or hearing the Word of God preached or hearing it read. It's about understanding it. And that's why they desire to hear it read. That's why they desire to hear it preached. So that they can understand it. And so, because they came with a proper uh, attitude of expectation and an attitude of responsiveness, Ezra is able to do what he does in verse 3. Look at chapter 8, verse 3. He read from it, Ezra did, from before the square, which is in front of the water gate, from early morning, this is really at dawn, until midday at noon. So from the first hour till the sixth hour, six hours straight. Very likely what he's reading here is the first five books of the Bible. That's why it's called the Book of the Law of Moses. Now, if he were to read the first five, if I were to read for you the first five books of the Bible, it would take about 14 hours. I know that because I have an audio Bible and I just totaled it up. Uh, and so it's likely not that he read the entire first five books of the Old Testament. It could be that he just read Deuteronomy and then discussed that. Deuteronomy takes about three hours to read through. Most likely, he probably read portions of the entire Pentateuch, the first five books, and just chose portions. You know, he, he may not be reading all the specific laws of Leviticus, for example, or all of the chronologies in Numbers. Uh, but but he, maybe he read the more historical accounts uh, just so that the people would know and remember some of these highlights in the first five books of the Bible. Whatever the case, he read for six hours, from midday until noon. They come with an attitude of expectation, of responsiveness, and so Ezra is able to do to read for that long. And then thirdly, they come with an attitude of reverence in verses 5 through 8. Notice what happens when Ezra begins reading in verse 5. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. Apparently they had made a, a podium, some kind of a, um, a podium for him to read from. And when he opened it, the Bible, all the people stood up. So there's an attitude of reverence here. Now, I don't know that necessarily we need to have this as a, as a practice, that every time the Word of God is... Uh, certainly we do that when we have the, the normal reading time within the Scriptures. But, but the point is that these people recognized that the Word of God was something to be honored because it came from the mouth of God. We also see their affirmation and submission in verse 6. As we bless the Lord... The great God and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed low and worshipped. They, 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 remember, their point was not just to hear it, but to respond to it. And this is their first response. It is, Amen, we agree. We, we say that it is true and we submit ourselves to it. And then they bowed low in worship, recognizing that they had not met up to the standard that God was worthy of worship Verse 7, we see their reverence in the fact that the, the Levite instructors, these 13 men, apparently spread out throughout the crowd. So you just imagine uh, probably thousands of people standing around Ezra, who's at the center at this podium, and he's reading the Word of God, and then 
Maybe he stops for a portion of time and then these 13 people go out to, to around to the various groups of people and then explain it. Because it's not enough, again, just to read the, the Word. It needs to be explained. Spiritual Reformation begins with a careful attention to the Word of God. Secondly, Spiritual Reformation demands a response to the Word of God in verses 9-18. through 18. Spiritual Reformation begins with careful attention to God's Word and then demands a response to God's Word. Verses 9-18. through 18. What happens when God speaks through His Word and His people come with the proper attitude of attentiveness, expectation, reverence, humility? What happens? Friends, this is a great recipe for genuine spiritual change. When God speaks, and His people are willing to listen and to, to be attentive. That's a recipe for genuine spiritual change. Here in verses 9-12, through 12, we see that Nehemiah or Ezra calls them to be joyful. Now three times in verses 9-11, through 11, there's this connection between being joyful and not mourning. Or, or God being holy and them being joyful. Notice verse 9, the second part of the verse. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. So we have this connection between God's holiness and them not weeping. Verse 10, he says, Go back to your houses and eat all this food. For, uh, uh, and then he says, For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Again, holiness of God and this day being set apart as holy and it being connected to not mourning or being joyful. Then verse 11 the Levites calmed all the people and said, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. Again, you see that same sort of idea. Here, uh, the people are being called to rejoice. Why is it so important for them to rejoice? Well, because they need to recognize the mercy of God as expressed in His Word. This will become clear next week when we look at chapter 9 and they think back to all of their past, that, that is, the, the previous generations and how they responded in sin and how they, keep, they had to continue to be turned back to God. But Nehemiah reminds them that, listen, you need to respond with joy. And notice their first response uh, to listening to the Word of God. Remember verse 6? They bowed low in worship and apparently... They had an attitude of grief and mourning because when we stand before God, we recognize our sin and, and who we are, what we've done, and how we don't meet up to His standard. And so three times in verses 9-11, through 11, the leaders of the people say, don't mourn or weep. You need to be joyful. Right? The, the, the overall reaction to this needs to be a time of joy. This is to be an occasion of joy. And so in verses 10 and 12... 12, Ezra sends them back to their houses so that they could gather themselves. Yes, they were sinful before God, but God had covered their sins with the blood of the atoning sacrifice. And this is why I try to remind us as a church on occasion when we come to the Lord's Supper that it's not to be a time of despair. We, we sometimes, I think, spend too much time navel-gazing, too much time in introspection, thinking about ourselves and our own sin. But that's not the purpose of the Lord's Supper. God did not 
or Jesus did not establish the Lord's Supper in order for you to be more sorrowful about your sin. Okay, we've taken a command from 1 Corinthians 11 which says, do not eat or drink unworthily, and we've taken it to an extreme where we spend all of the time in, 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 in uh, remembering the death of Christ, thinking about our own sin, but that's not the purpose of the cross. Yes, we ought to recognize our sin, but the primary reaction, the primary thought, the primary feeling, experience of the Lord's Supper should be one of worship and joy. That Christ's atoning work is enough to pay for our sins, past, present, and future. Yes, we should not come um, haphazardly to the table, but the point there in 1 Corinthians 11 when it says don't eat or drink unworthily is that some of these people are coming drunk to the Lord's Supper. Okay? So so we tend to take that as an extreme and say, man, I need to make sure I have no sin in my life. Well, guess what? That's never going to happen. Okay? Because we are fully, or, or not fully, but we are regularly sinful. And everything that we try to do, we, we even do imperfectly. And that will be the case for our entire lives. So, so yes, we want to be cleansed. We want to, to have a, a clear look at the cross. We want to ask for forgiveness for our sins, but the primary thing, uh, the primary attitude that we should have at the Lord's Supper should be one of joy. Notice verse 10. Okay, again, I'm just using the Lord's Supper as an application for us. That's not what was going on here. Uh, verse 10. Do not be grieved. The end of the verse. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Believers who are constantly gloomy because of their sin, I think, don't see the majesty of the cross as clearly as they ought to. Believers who are constantly gloomy don't see the majesty of the cross in a proper perspective and likely don't realize and depend upon the satisfying, all-sufficient work of our Savior. And He's covered it all. And we have reason to be joyful all the time. That's why Paul can say, Rejoice! And again I say it. Rejoice. We don't have reason to be gloomy. Yes, our sin is terrible. Yes, our sin stays with us and still plagues us. But the primary attitude of a believer throughout his Christian life ought to be one of joy. Because Christ has saved us. He's covered it all. There's no more that we need to do to be accepted by God. The second reason why they had to rejoice, first, they recognized the mercy of God as expressed in His Word. And we'll see that again next week in chapter 9. The second reason is that they recognized that it was time to celebrate the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, in verse 12. It's critical that we understand what God says and what God intends for us to do. And when we do, when we properly understand what God is telling us, and we know how to put it into practice, it ought to be a platform for us to to rejoice. We, We are in a good position spiritually. When God is speaking to us, and we're properly understanding what He's saying, and we know exactly what He wants us to do to put it into practice. Have you ever walked away from hearing God God's Word being preached and just thought, well, that was interesting, but I don't know what to do with that. Okay, Hopefully, the Holy Spirit is working through 
the applications that I'm kind of helping you along with, but also giving you additional applications uh, that, that you can take the Word of God and apply it directly to your heart. It, it's frustrating sometimes. We can walk away from the Word of God and say, I don't really know what to do with it. But when we walk away going, God, I know what you're saying. You've told me you hate whatever sin, let's say anger. You know, you've told me how I need to respond to that. I need to not sin in my anger. I need to show love. And, and I know exactly how to put that into practice. And so I can walk away. I know that God, you speaking to me, and you've told me exactly what I need to do in order to change. That's what's going on here. Hosea said to the people on behalf of God in Hosea 6.6, 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. We need to know what God says and what He demands of us. And that's where these people are. They, they come to a place where they recognize we haven't been celebrating the Feast of Booths as we, probably, as, as we properly should. And so this is a call for celebration in verses 13 through 18. The families, again in verse 10, were sent back to their homes. But now, here in verse 13, notice who remains behind. Then on the second day, the heads of fathers' households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight in the words of the law. So after a six-hour sermon, uh, the people were a little bit tired out. So they went home. The next day, uh, the, the heads of all the households came back along with all the community leaders, that is the Levites and the priests, and they came to Ezra and they said, okay, we heard all of what you said yesterday and we want to make sure that we understand what you're talking about. We want to understand that we want to make sure that, that we are doing the right thing, that we're responding rightly. And that's what's going on here in verse 13. It's not enough for us to accept the Bible. Yes, we believe the Bible is true. It's not enough to, for us to accept it on the surface level. We have to understand it as best as we can. And that's why I... I often need to encourage myself or challenge myself and I want to encourage you to, to um, move past mindless reading of the Scriptures. It's so easy, especially when we have a list, right, of chapters that we're trying to read through and just check off the list. I've done it. And yet, we've blown through a section of Scripture without understanding what it means. Now, we can't fully dive into every section of Scripture, but... But can God speak to us when we're only reading, let's say, a chapter or two a day? I mean, can we know what God has said? God is not trying to be elusive in what He's teaching us. And so, yes, we can have some sort of knowledge of what He's saying to us. And that means we need to, while we're listening, engage our minds. Not just say, okay, I'm just going to do a surface level, of surface level reading of the Scriptures. I'm done. All right, next task of the day. But rather, I'm reading it in order to understand it. What is God saying? What does God want from me? And God help me to understand that. Well, for them, they found out that they were not celebrating the Feast of Booths. In verse 14, they found it written in the law how the Lord had commanded them through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the Feast of the Seventh Month. And amazingly, which month is this happening in? This is happening in the Seventh Month. And so now they have two weeks to prepare for this Feast of the Booths. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. It happens on the 15th day of the month. And so they say, well, well, if that's what God has told us to do, then we need to be doing this. We're not doing it. 
And so, verse 16, they gather the supplies for it, all these different kinds of branches for the, the roots. So basically, just make temporary dwelling places. Uh, in, in Leviticus chapter 23, Moses tells why the people were supposed to uh, memorialize this week. That is, uh, why they were supposed to have this Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths. Leviticus 23, verse 42 reads, You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths. So that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. It's a memorial, similar to our memorial that we do of the Lord's death. For them it was, you're supposed to remember the wilderness wanderings. They lived in temporary dwelling places. They never uh, made a stake in the land. Well, for those 40 years. And you need to remember that. It's part of God's deliverance of them from Egypt. And the way that you remember it is by setting up these temporary living structures in order to remind yourselves of how God had provided for the people after He delivered them from Egypt. And so the people do it and they celebrate with great joy. Notice the end of verse 17. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so, celebrated the Feast of Booths, from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day. And there was great rejoicing. Now, what Nehemiah is saying here is not that they had never celebrated it, uh, because in fact they had done it in 1 Kings 8, 2 Chronicles 7, and Ezra 3. But I think what he's saying here is this is the first time that they've done it with this much joy. That was the point of the memorial. It was for them to be reminded of what God had done and to be joyful in it. This was the first time that they did it with joy. That's the point. From the time of Joshua and the and, and uh, the conquest, they had not celebrated the Feast of Booths with such joy. And so this is a really remarkable day for them, a an important day. When we begin to follow God as He wants to be followed, as He has prescribed and we know that we are pleasing to God, then this is, a, this is going to be something that we're going to be able to do with joy. Have you had that experience where you knew exactly what God wanted you to do and instead of choosing the pleasures of this world or some kind of sin, you chose to follow God and you knew that you were pleasing to God? That is what is going to bring you joy in the Christian life. Verse 18, Ezra read the word each day of the feast. So the feast, remember, lasts for seven days. So each day he's keeping at the center the, the reading of the word of God. He wants to recognize, listen, if there's going to be continual change and reflection on who God is, proper worship of him, it starts with a proper reading of God's word. So let me just give you three, um, three principles in closing. Number one, preservation is not guaranteed. Preservation is not guaranteed. The Jews, although not all were believers, okay, we need to recognize that. That when we we got to be careful about making that connection between the Jews, Old Testament Israel, and the church. There are some logical connections that I think God wants us to make, but what we we need to recognize is that the church is supposed to be made up of believers only. The Jews had a mixture of both believers and unbelievers. Okay, but, but the point is that the Jews serve for us as an illustration of what God, God demands of all of us and 
what our mission as a church ought to be. As a church, we are calling people to be the true people of God, calling them out of sin, out of the world, in order to trust Christ. And if we're going to do that, then, then we have to help them to see that they need to come out from the world and be separate. And, and when they do, we need to recognize that, that that preservation is not guaranteed. In order to preserve the truth of God in this body, we need to recognize from where we came and upon what we were built and that we need to be faithful to the Scriptures to the end. Preservation does not happen automatically. The preservation of this body of believers does not happen automatically and is not guaranteed. We need to work like like Nehemiah recognized. There are threats outside of us. And even though we are standing on the shoulders of the people who have gone before us in many ways at this local church, of men and women who loved God and were committed to its truth, we stand on their shoulders. And we are building on the foundation that they've laid in many ways. Yet we can't guarantee that, that we're going to be preserved. And so we need to guard against any threats that come from the outside, take care of any internal conflicts that, that come up just like Nehemiah had to, and recognize that we need to be, be back in the Scriptures, faithful to the Scriptures. What is it that God's saying? Constantly refining ourselves. Preservation is not guaranteed. Secondly, knowing the Word of God is not automatic. This is really the focus of the chapter. Knowing the Word of God is not automatic. It's not automatic that we're going to embrace the Word of God, that we're going to love the Word of God, that we're going to pursue the Word of God. And, and we also have to recognize that it's not just the leader's responsibility. Yes, I have a responsibility to care for your soul and to guide you. I mean, my main responsibility is to preach the Word. And there is a sense in which it should be natural or normal, we could say, for believers to desire the Word of God because believers are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. But sadly, in our day, the importance of knowing the Word of God has fallen by the wayside, hasn't it? We need fewer churches where the most important feature is the entertainment or the storytelling ability of the pastor. We need fewer churches like that. We need more churches who read the Word of God and who listen attentively and responsively to the Word of God every week. And this, I think, ought to be the concern and the desire of every single member. Paul said in 1 Timothy 3.15 that not the leaders are the pillar and support of the truth. He didn't say the apostles or the Holy Spirit is the pillar and support of the truth. There's definitely some some truth we could, we could gain from both of those answers. But he said that the church... The congregation, the, the community of believers is the pillar and support of the truth. You want to know how truth is going to be upheld over the long term? <coughs> it's when believers are concerned about it and want it preached, want it read, want to understand it, want to obey it. Remember the Bereans in Acts 17? They were people who searched the Scriptures daily to see if the Apostle Paul if what he was saying was true from the Bible. They were people who recognized that the Word of God and its understanding is not automatic. Thirdly, 
the strongest churches are churches that are made up of people of the book. Strongest churches have people who are people of the book. That is, this book. You know, we can fill our time spent together as a church with lots of things that entertain. We can fill our time with lots of things that, you know, just make us feel good. But at the center of who we are to be as a church, we are to be people of the book. This is one of the ways that I pray for you every week. That you, by name, would be a person of the book. We should come before the Bible reverently and humbly. Remember the one to whom God looks? To whom does God look? In Isaiah 66, 2. God looks to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and what? And trembles at his word. People who are earnest about the word of God. This is one of the marks of a mature Christian. Someone who trembles at the word of God. That doesn't mean that your knees buckle necessarily when someone reads it in front of you. Although it may at times. To have a trembling at the word of God means that you revere it when it's read. You're not just standing there when someone like Bill comes up and reads it and just kind of staring off into space or thinking about what's going to be for lunch. It means you revere the Word of God when it's read. This is God speaking to me and to this congregation. To tremble at God's Word means that you desire to understand it. That you have an attitude of expectation when you come here. Not, here's another Sunday on the calendar. But this is God. He's speaking to me. He's got something for me to hear. To tremble at God's Word means that you worked hard to understand it. That you actively engage. You know, we think sometimes that listening is a passive uh, a passive ability. We just sit there and whatever comes to us, it's going to kind of osmosisly uh, enter our bodies. No. Listening is an active responsibility on our parts. We need to engage our minds in order to understand what's being read and preached. And we also work to understand it by studying it and memorizing it. To tremble at God's Word means that you acknowledge it as from the Almighty God and when it confronts your sin, you're quick quick to purge that sin. That you're not quick to dismiss it. You know, well, I know the Word of God says that, but come on. Is that really helpful for today? It was written a long time ago. The strongest churches are churches that are made up of people of the book. Made up of people who are people of the book. God speaks through His Word, and when God's people are humble and responsive before it, that is when you're really going to see God's work. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that You are a God who exists, and You are a God who speaks. You have not left us without a witness, but You have made it very clear to us who you are and what you desire of us, what we need in order to be accepted by you. And so we praise you for that. And Lord, we also have to admit, we have to confess that that we do not revere your word as we ought to. We often come to it lackadaisically. We come to it half-heartedly. We come to it with an idea of superstition sometimes that maybe if we're just in church it will do something 
make us better than a person who's not in church. But Lord, we recognize that that responding to your word demands that we are actively engaged in hearing it and and responding to it. So help us to know what your word says and how specifically to apply it. May we desire it all the more so that we are people like uh, the people during time the time of Ezra and Nehemiah who are happy to hear it for long periods of time and happy happy to have it explained to them and then happy to to respond to it in change and as we'll see next week happy to give you praise for all the, the great mercies that you've shown along the way Lord we want to be a strong and a healthy church made up of people who love your word so help us to recognize our responsibility and accepting it and responding to it in Jesus name Amen